Hey everyone, welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we three doctors of physical therapy discuss the art and the science of the stuff that we're putting on our feet. Today is a very exciting episode because we have the senior footwear designer for Hoka One One on. Her name is Valerie Weilert. It is extra special today because she is a personal friend of mine. Welcome to the show, Valerie. Very happy to be here. Great to meet you all. Yeah, it feels weird to call you Valerie. I, I know her as Val. So <laughs> that works too. Val is fine. Be whatever is easiest. <laughs> all right. Well, I would like to start the conversation off. We'll just see um, how did you get started with running and the running industry and a little bit of your personal background. Yeah. So um, I am a native Californian. Uh, so I have the pleasure of running year round as a kid. It was never, you know, outdoors was everything. Um, honestly, though, I didn't really fall into running until around eighth grade and before that I was a dabbler in all the sports like most kids definitely a soccer kid um but really it was kind of a fun journey to running because I had actually my art teacher I was in a small school um he was like hanging out with the PE teacher and we were doing some running and he encouraged me he was like I think you should try track and field like I there's something about you or whatever he saw maybe it was my too much energy in class that needed to get out, honestly. Um, so I joined a track club called the NorCal Cheetahs. Um, and that was awesome. It was all like sprints and met a couple or every other day. Uh, got to do the whole like Junior Olympics stuff, the club scene. So that really like was my first intro into running. And then in high school, um, I was a was soccer or cross-country soccer track Um so three sports and, you know, just lucky enough to uh, get a scholarship at San Jose State. And I mean, looking back, the kids these days, looking at the high school kids, I'm amazed. Back then, like, so I graduated in 2003. It was all like Timex watches and just go run and definitely no like Instagram fangirling over athletes or anything, you know, you just kind of... <laughs> own little bubble you wanted to get through league meets and dual meets and maybe make it to state if you could and that was kind of the world it wasn't like it is now um but yeah I was lucky to run in college and study industrial design so that's like essentially product design um and you know I just always had been an artist and a runner kind of a jock artist mm -hmm. So, but yeah, as far as footwear, that was much later down the road. Um, kind of when I was in school, the focus was a lot on, you know, Apple was really cool to work for tech companies, consumer goods, um, housewares, not so much, or like working at a design consultancy. I didn't know any footwear designers until I actually met one um, at Prefontaine Classic. I was there visiting a teammate who worked at Nike uh, after we had graduated a few years out of college and I asked her friend who was with her, what do you do for Nike? And he was like, well, I'm a footwear designer. It's like, wait, 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 how did you do that? Like, did you study fashion? Like there was just not the knowledge I think that there is today. Um, and once I heard what he did and how, like what his job was like, I'm like, wait, this is the perfect job like I'm a runner and I love art and design and why can't I put these two things together 
So sorry, I'm just blabbing on and on here. No, but, um, wait, keep little, going. This is great. Yeah. So yeah. Um, after that, I I was working at um, at the time. I don't know if you're familiar with like Bell and Giro helmets. So I was mostly doing like mm-hmm. product graphics, like illustration, um, kind of more in that world at the time. And then I met the footwear designer. And then I also had a a friend that worked with me more on the like industrial design side, creating helmets. And he was encouraging me to get a sketchbook and start drawing shoes and footwear. And so I just gravitated towards it and started making projects for myself outside of work. Um, Really, this is kind of the thing I tell a lot of people who discover it later in life that it's going to take time. It's worth the time outside of your job. If it's something you really love and you're passionate for passionate and it just yeah it's just about meeting those people and connect making those connections and so having that designer that I met he was he had <laughs> a mentor for me so I would send my projects to him get feedback uh and later down the road like many years later he was my boss at Under Armour um but yeah, I I guess I think the one really uh, project that got me in the door at Brooks was a coworker of mine was friends with Danny Mackey. He ran with him in college. He's like, you should create a spike for his wife, who is then on the beasts. And so um, they were in town for like a Silicon Valley turkey trot, and I got to meet her. And you know, I have this whole sketchbook I dedicated to her, and I created a a prototype prototype it was pretty rough uh <laughs> sewing by hand and doing my best <laughs> cobbling that's awesome but she was so sweet and i'm sure she would have destroyed it in a stride but she like at least tried it on and um a job had opened at brooks and having that project uh showing that i like took the initiative to meet with an athlete and you know design a spike um worked out so i ended up starting there that was my first footwear design job in 2013 so wow yeah that's the like general story there's lots more to add but that's kind of how i got introduced to footwear design well that's about as grassroots as it gets i didn't (laughs) understand that that's awesome yeah (laughs) yeah well, cool. And then, so obviously now you've landed at Hoka Oneone and um, anytime for the listeners, we have anyone that's this deep in a company, there's non-disclosure agreements and things like that, that they can't talk about or certain things in development, whatever. We can't address those things, but we can at least cover what we can. So if, if we ever at any point, Val, like r- touch on something that you can't talk about, feel free to just be like, I plead we, we can't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> At this time, you know, that's, that's, that's fine. Totally fine. Sure. But I mean, for right now, I just, because you have such a unique position at Hoka and such a unique position at Brooks or before, um, what does your normal day look like? So this is such an interesting question because it really depends on the time of the year and the season. So our calendars are set up um, at least in the companies I've been in, I think you could speak to most performance companies. It's like a two season calendar. So you have like a, a spring summer focus and a fall winter focus. So, um, let's just say, I guess maybe it's easy to run through kind of what a design season may look like. Um, and a lot of times it'll start with, you know, 
what are the shoes in the line that we're going to tackle this year? And that can be um, built off of what not only the line previously, but what are some new consumer needs that this brand needs to go after? So we're involved with product line management as well as development. And I maybe you've heard from your other interviewers or interviewees, um, the, the triad, the product triad. So it's usually a developer who's um, the engineer side or the liaison with the factory, the product line manager who's more on the marketing, like doing the, he's kind of the face of the line, sharing it in sales and everything. And then there's the designer who's the um, engineer in the sense that we create the bottom and the upper, but a lot of the aesthetics too. So anyway, it's a team effort is what I'm saying. And we kick it off and from a design standpoint, we need to find a certain amount of inspiration to have a vision for the season. So we'll kind of huddle as a design team once we know the shoes that are going to be in the line. And sometimes, well, pre-COVID times, we would take a trip. Maybe it'd be um, to a market we needed more insights on. Like, for example, um, I've been to Japan to, like, understand the Japanese runner. And so we'd go, yeah, it was great. We'd go That's in home. Awesome. And we'd have a translator and they'd say like, show, they'd show us their closet of shoes and what their running life looked like, their training, what was important to them, um, what clothes they like to wear, their story. And it was really cool to start mapping out these consumers like this. And sometimes the, insp and well, also with these kinds of trips, if we're talking to consumers, uh, you'll get to explore the city and see a museum or see some kind of really interesting like a tea ceremony or go to a certain landmark and observe like their architecture other kinds of things of, that you want to bring back um that can be inspirational to you like the craftsmanship i'm just using japan as an example um but it really could be anywhere um so that can inform color design all sorts of things and you start using that in your design presentation and your inspiration as you're sketching so next steps. You I'm, I'm surprised that. Uh, <laughs> Go on. I was going to say, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't been to Stevens Point, Wisconsin yet for, <laughs> for an inspiration conference. Oh my gosh. Hey, Wisconsin's <laughs> got a great uh, running history, you know? No, we do. Yeah. yeah like Schumacher and, actually, and McDonald's. It was just there. And so, yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll come back and start sketching and a lot of this is like kind of go into our holes and design design and share with our triad whoever like the triad is assigned per project so a designer will have a developer and a plm per shoe um and typically you'll have two to four shoes a season uh a designer will own that and it depends on their level or the complexity of the project and usually there's a few design reviews. So you're starting with a few concepts and we're picking and pulling of what's working. And a lot of times it's all down to what are we trying to achieve with the, with the product? It needs to be, you know, soft as possible, a certain weight, you know, or it needs to express like something visually that we're trying to get after. And so as long as it hits the mark, we're always cross checking those, um like goals those north stars we're trying to hit with the product as we go through reviews so there's a final design review and then we we call it a tech pack when we're basically creating like a 
very tight recipe so that the factory can see exactly how to make it. So we have like a blueprint, like imagine an architectural drawing essentially of the bottom and then the upper, we call it a shell pattern and you can see, you know, the detailing and where you want what and calling out all the materials. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of one part of the process. And then you send it out and you get samples back. And then we have people like you, Nathan, testing and giving us feedback and then we refine. So it's very iterative, right? Even at the beginning, it's like information gather, spit it back out, refine it do it back and forth, back and forth until you're done. So, and then you do it again. <laughs> so it's really, it's really cool. Cause you have these little creations you make. Um, and then eventually the rewarding part is seeing somebody run by on your run or someone on TV who's racing in them or in a magazine or whatever it is. And you just feel good that like, wow, something I did and we did like our team did is out there in the world so that's really cool how what's the how much would you say a shoe changes from like your team's first idea of a shoe to through all of the you know wear testing etc cetera, etc cetera. like how much do you does the first concept change especially not so much for updates but like a new line of shoe shoe concept to to shoe production how much does it change you know it depends sometimes you need about a good amount of change to get it where you want it right like it can be oh so close but not quite right or sometimes a material doesn't test as well as you think so you do have to make a drastic <clears throat> change um ideally though most of the change is happening in the early concept phase and with each round you're just dialing it in a little bit and a little bit um occasionally there's been you know sometimes blow ups we'll call it or like fire drills where something just doesn't turn out right and we don't make that shoe mm -hmm. and you know maybe we use something we learned from it later down the road but most of the time it's like i said pretty iterative each way you're just chipping away so it's not like a shoe was like totally different because you're still after the same goal right yeah like it's a soft cushioned ride shoe or it's a racing flat it's you know so, but right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you may have already touched on this. I'm just curious because you have such a just wide array of duties for your job. What's the most fun part of your job? I would say like the problem solving. I guess that's kind of what a designer is in the most important part or most important skill is like getting that challenge and then problem solving, especially with the crew of people we have like i'm really lucky to have an awesome team and i think like getting all those ideas in and all that information and knowledge and then trying to make something new out of it is really fun um and then i have to say as a a super geek of the sport is working with athletes is one of my absolute mm. anything signature um, it's kind of like being a, like working for a jordan shoe right like when i get to create a spike for an athlete I'm so excited to get bring that to them because I know how much they'll appreciate it. So that's so awesome. That that is the perfect segue too because I was gonna start asking about shoes next. That's yeah. what most of our fan base is <laughs> looking forward to as well. Um, 
Do you have any favorite shoes to design, like racing flats versus spikes versus trainers or trail shoes or anything like that? Um, geez. I mean, I'd have to say spikes have been my favorite because it's kind of been my own little world. Every company I've worked at has, nobody really wants to work on them. They have this reputation for like, oh, they don't make any money. Nobody really knows. Cause you know, like an adrenaline, big, big, you know, or a Clifton. And it's not that I, those aren't awesome and fun to work on, but there's certain challenges that come with shoes with big reputations because you don't want to offend any fan base. You want to make sure there's no big changes. You want to, whereas I feel like I can push some boundaries with spikes a little bit more. Um, I mean, there still is a balance cause it needs, it's a hundred percent equipment, right? Like it needs to function. It needs to perform. But um, I think with spikes, you have some fun freedom, some storytelling, some pushing materials and like the complexity is really fun. And then for example, I think one of my favorite projects I've gotten to work on was a spike for Nick Simmons. So it was really fun because he's just a character in general. And um, he has a lot of experience working in product before I think with Nike. And so um just kind of having him talk to me about the event, like his event, he, he was a hundred percent an 800 runner and hearing him describe his racing style could really inspire me to design mm. not only functionally, but like visually, you know? Um, so that was kind of, it was super fun. I had this huge board. I would just like pin pictures and look at his foot strike and, um, you know, just have him test and give feedback. It's, it's cool. So yeah, yeah. Man, that's like the upper echelon right there. Yeah. I mean, you look at Nike, like they designed the Alpha Fly for Kipchoge. Like when you get to work for an athlete and they're the featured one for that shoe, that's so cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then getting to see him win like his six eight hundred national title in the spike and he was just like, like you know, <laughs> that was his total mo at that time um was really neat and it was on his way out of the sport but he still like went out on top so mm -hmm. I, have yeah. a question, I have a question on that so as someone designing spikes for an elite athlete and i know this is probably a challenging question so if you're like uh like just let me know but yeah. how do you transfer that from the elite athlete to going okay now we're going to sell this to the consumer whether it's a college athlete or a high school athlete like what is what does that transition look like well i think making sure that while it's specific to the athlete in the sense that it's the performance level is up to what they need, that it's not so polarizing as far as like we made it off of their foot or like, you know, like a last designed off of their foot or some really specific feature that you would produce separately. And this, mm -hmm. you would have kind of your you know, inspired by Nick Simmons, but this ended up being the shoe that was mass produced. So that worked out well. I think this really is important um, coming from like our sales reps or our tech reps and them telling the story that design has put into it or how has the product team put into it and them, you know, be being able to make sure that's known from like when they have their spike nights and uh, is there some kind of other twist or making sure the athletes are showing it showing it off or there's some kind of connection so that it doesn't get lost 
But that can be hard because it doesn't always, we're not always talking to each other as much as I think we could be just because things get so busy, right? So, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's the mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. There's something interesting. I don't know if there's, this might not hold any water, but the idea of if, if a shoe is designed for a certain athlete and you, the more you know about that athlete and what their preferences are, how they run, et cetera, you might be able to be like, hey, I run like him or I run like her that shoe might actually work really well for me. Um, yeah. and, and there's only so many ways to run. I mean, there's, yeah. well, at the same time, there's only so many ways and there's infinitely different ways, I suppose at the same time. But like, if you can, if you, if, if you can match yourself to a, to a runner who has a shoe made for them, or I could see like, if anyone could ever play like Giannis Antetokounmpo in basketball, mm -hmm. you'd be like, well, his shoes for me, but no one's as good as him. So, um, <laughs> It's no, yeah, I can get a handful right off the top of my right? head. But. Right? Like, you, like, Nick, it was all about um, that last 200 for him. Like, that slingshot off the curve. I need to have enough support in the upper so that I'm not sliding off the edge. And this is where I need the support. And I need it to be stiff enough. But I didn't, he didn't want, like, a super curved, like, last super high toe spring. It needed to be connected enough to the ground, but stiff. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's for the athlete who is an aggressive spike, like at 800, 415, but no more. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, right. although we did have athletes who ran in it, in a 3K, but they, you know, they're unique, right? Unique unicorns, whatever. Um, but yeah, so like, for example, yeah, Nick is aggressive. He sprints that last 200 hard. I want to be like that or I run like that. This may be a spike for me. Um, but I'm not sure. I think running brands have a long way to go to tell those stories. Whereas I see mm -hmm. basketball companies connecting that and using their athletes so much more. Um, right. I don't know if it's just because it feels elitist. Sometimes it can come across, you know, it's just how do you make the athlete personable, relatable, and do they even know them? And that's part of like our challenge with our sport in general right right i was gonna say i think it's almost a bigger picture thing because there's such a big sneaker culture in the basketball world that it's like everyone's got their featured shoe there's the story behind it the whole development process and that's happening in every single sport for every athlete but basketball specifically for some reason seems to have like the handle on that it, I, yeah. maybe it was jordan you know that really really kick-started this i don't know but yeah that's so interesting well, because it's it's a story. A lot of times, it's that for a consumer that sells, right? It's like you're you're looking for something that motivates you. This is the product that I want. This has meaning to me. I think it's interesting at running. Like we haven't really they haven't really done that. Like we've had a couple stories, right? A couple like athlete featured shoes, but they don't really last that long. Because usually, just okay, we move on to the next thing. It would be nice to have that personal connection, right? To go, you know, this isn't just someone who runs. It was sponsored by us. Like, there's a story here. Like, yeah. this, this, yeah, this well, is coming from that. This is who they are as a person. This might be interesting. You go, that personality might match you. Like, hey, this, it might be interesting from a marketing perspective to take that. Cause to take it this slightly off topic, like, for me as a clinician, when I'm talking to patients, like, to be honest with you, the biomechanical stuff is really easy. It's like, yeah, I watched you walk in. I'm at the point, I'm lucky enough in my career, not always, where I can watch somebody walk in and I'm like, I've got a pretty good idea what's going on already. That's not nearly the most important thing. The most important thing is listening to who they are. 
because who they are will determine what kind of interventions are going to work best. It's going to tell me, are they going to be able to work with me? And it's also going to tell me who they are. It's like, what do they like? What are their preferences? Because if I don't match that, I'm not going to be effective. And so like the treat, the treatment part itself, like the biomechanical stuff, like that's the most, that's the fun part. That's like, oh, this is easy. Like, like, but that's not the most important part. The most part going is who is this person? What's their story? And so I'd be interested if that could, we could get that in the running world and what that would do from marketing perspective, but I'm also have no knowledge of marketing. So <laughs> I might be like talking out my rear end and not understand how this works. At no, all. I agree completely. Like what you were saying with Nick coming off the last 200, yeah. I could picture it. Frame by he does frame that every time. My yeah. Head. yeah. Nick Simmons comes barreling yeah. off of that last 150 so hard. And the fact that he is like, I need an upper that can hold me. I want the ground contact. Like the fact that he's that in tune, you don't really hear that in athletes that are like, I want the upper secure when I'm turning on a 150. Usually they're like, I want it light. I want it snappy. I want it fast. And it's like, okay, well, we create that. And then it still might not be the right shoe. You know, you can look at like, say the Nike victory, like the very first one where it was so low profile and so tiny, like, for some people, it was like their dream spike, but for others, they had a really hard time with it. Well, I, David, you have a certain spike that I'd love you to bring up from from a certain company right now that has a very interesting asymmetrical pattern, and there's a very oh. story behind that. <laughs> that I, I, mean, I could bring it up. Yeah, I mean, it's been out forever now. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the old Evo. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Speed Evo. Yeah, I mean, I'm not so, sure if I can I'm say. Always, okay. I'm yeah. always prepared. I got all of my Hoka shoes right yeah. next. To me, so. Yeah. I, so yeah, this is like before my time, but honestly, this design was like the design student's dream in the sense that is something you said you wanted to do, but nobody had the balls to do it, right? Because right. <laughs> it's two different plates, which costs money because it's two different molds. Yep. And the, the thinking is sound. Um, and this is interesting because I remember talking to Nick even about this and he was like, no, I don't want to feel anything different on either one of my feet. They need to feel the same. And so like, it, it's interesting. Yeah. So it really depends on the athlete, but Leo obviously was a spe- like spoke yeah. towards this and they listened to him and it was something he wanted and the traction in that spike plate is beautiful. Like, and it definitely makes me think like you're not wasting any like sheer forces are going no other place than you want them around that turn. So yeah, that's a really cool spike for sure. And there are some things coming down the pipeline that have been inspired by that. There we go. But um, we got to tell that story. So that's not now. I know I get it. Not right now, but like that's the interesting. That's the interesting part. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the time spent is on the turn granted you're most efficient in the straight, but still you don't, ex- then why not exp- take advantage of those weaknesses? Right. And trying to make them less of a weakness. Um, and yeah, I think w- going back to like that storytelling too. Um, I think it's also cool that it's not just one athlete. A lot of times it's a lot of athletes, you know, going to, NJNY to talk to them or NAZ or who uh, local teams that we speak to to get their feedback and so taking it all in and sometimes you have the signature athlete and it's great but you always want to make sure it works for a big range of people as well right so Mm -hmm. yeah just like 
showing it and sharing it. And hopefully people find that valuable or interesting. Just a heads up for Val mentioned that, you know, having two different spike plates, right, is incredibly expensive. When you change the last of a shoe, like even little things, it can cost upwards of $7,000, if not more, just to do that per shoe. So imagine making two different shoes for the same shoe. That's a lot of work. Um, and yeah. that number, I'm probably underestimating that number because that's what I've been told from other individuals I've spoken to when I've pitched ideas going, hey, can you send me this shoe for a study? And they're like, uh, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, like, if we had endless amount. On you for your PhD, like, sorry, we don't like you that much. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm just kidding. They were awesome, but. <laughs> no, but yeah, it, I mean, sometimes it does come down to like practicality and what you can mass produce. A lot of times in the sprint or in the spike world, you don't um, worry too much about money because you're going to lose it anyway right? Because they cost a lot to make. They don't make that many. Like, you know, it's a, a big difference, 10,000 pairs versus like 500,000 pairs, right? So the cost, you're just losing money because you're just not making enough to pay it back. Um, so, but sometimes it's like, well, let's just do it up. These are partly in marketing supported dollars because they're going on athletes who are part of marketing, right? Right. So it just depends <laughs> what you can get yeah. away with. But I think oh, what I would like to see more of is us 3D printing plates more often, right? Like, why not test that? Why not do that? Like, it was kind of this little glimmer of hope from NB, from New Balance, and then it just didn't really... It, the practicality of it, I think, is a little more difficult in just what you can do with it. But I would love to test more often that way and before cutting steel when we open a mold um do that first and i we did that i did that once with brooks on a sprint spike um which was cool it was just it's not part of our regular practice which would be fun i think to do so you can get a little more wild then because you're not committing to spending a lot of money opening this mold mm -hmm. so. that's interesting well, that's also interesting too, because now that that leads me to my next like question component here, because we're in a world now where I almost call it the wild west of just shoe engineering in general. I think there's no secret that the Nike Vaporfly completely just shattered the footwear world in terms of how you design shoes and go about materials, geometry, plates, all this whole entire new wave of what people call new generation shoes. Some even will call them quote unquote, super shoes. Yeah. Whether or not they're super or not, I think that's up for debate, but um, yeah. <laughs> what's, what's your take on that? Like carbon plate, PBAX plate, no plate foams. Hold on. I mean, I think the secret sauce and from my experience running them is the molded carbon plate carbon plates have been around forever it's when you add that spring element a curvature to it you i think there's nothing like i felt i've never felt anything like it before so you know i do think it has a place like it depends on the event you're doing and but we're talking about long distance running and i think and especially on the road um i think they're super <laughs> I think they're super fantastic. And it's not just with, it's not just the carbon, it's the combination, it's the lightness of the foam, right? It's to be able to create that 
um, you know, Nike Zoom X. It's so light and responsive. Yes, it dies sooner, but that's the point is performance, right? We're not trying to run a ton of miles. So um, as far as like PVAX plates, usually what that's like something that happens in spikes, right? It's the, it's the traction element. And then you have the foam and then you have the, well, you can do lots of different combinations, right? But it's a mix of carbon foam and PVAX for grip. Um, that's mostly what I see. And if in the past before carbon, maybe have been like, oh, we need carbon. Um, you could use nylon or PVAX, right? Like a shank like the older streaks had them or, you know, a lot of racing flats, a lot of brands had that. So just to add that torsional rigidity, I don't think they in, were created like we're thinking about now where we're running it through the length of the shoe. Um, I think in the past rubber also acts as that it's a torsion, right? It's like running from heel to toe. It creates when, you, if this is the, the shoe you're like pulling it, it snaps back because of the rubber. If it's running all the way the, through the length of the shoe so there's other there's lots of ways to do it it's just when you have something like carbon and you can even engineer the direction of the stiffness right you can mold it you can do lots of cool things with it so i think that's what's compelling about it <laughs> right so i have yet to try like the adidas shoe which i'm interested oh yes <laughs> is with the prongs right like what does that feel like yeah, so that shoe, my good friend Odile designed. It's wonderful. <laughs> I don't know how much I can say, but you can show it off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think the uh, the plate design is public knowledge, right? The uh, I believe there's like an exploded view where you can see all the components, right? Yeah, I was gonna say because I can't remember if I got that off of Protos or if I got that off of. <laughs> <laughs> I think Hoka even had a nice little advertisement of that, a beautiful like image it did. of it. it okay, it cool. Space. I yeah. Because like they had an interesting plate design, and that's also interesting too. Because you can mold it, you can have cutouts, you can do all kinds of crazy things. Say like with the the Audios Pro, where they did those energy rods. It doesn't necessarily have to be a plate necessarily. Mm -mm. Um, yeah, I'd be curious what you guys think from a biomechanical standpoint and having run in them. Do you think about these things when you're running in it? How is this affecting my foot and knowing the foot really well and all the bones and all the ligaments and all the, all the things, do this you is, think there is a connection with what could work best or is it really dependent on the runner? I, it really, this is what makes running difficult at times. You're like, I just want to go for a run. And then you put the shoe on, you're like, Okay. <laughs> like I feel that going over my first mat. Like, what are my peroneals doing? Like, how's my post tip? What's my <laughs> like? Like, dude, I just want to go for a run. So, but that's also me because I'm nuts and like can't stop thinking. But in terms of you know, one of the things that was we're having trouble with the with the research because so, from the research world, we're trying to figure out like what are these plates doing? And most of the suggestions right now, especially because, but we're not talking about changing the shape in terms of like extra curves and stuff like that. It's just a lot of it in the past has been, yeah, you're just stiffening the sole, right? So it's just adding bending stiffness. Now, if you start changing the shapes, we don't have any research on that. So we don't know what happens when you do that. But what I really, and I don't have any evidence behind what I'm going about ready to say, but what thing I really like about the Carbon X 1 and 2 is the way the plate is designed. Because 
if you create enough stiffness somewhere, you're going, the foot is going to take the path of least resistance. One of the things I love about the plate design here is that it helps you pivot off the first toe, which again, that's a really good power point, right? All your muscles are like biased in that direction. That's where you are supposed to pivot off to really get the, like the wind last mechanism, the part of the foot to work out. So I really like that Hoka did that. And I like, because again, what people I feel like don't talk about enough with plates is you can use that to guide motion or create stability. I think that's yeah. one of the things that the Carbon X one and two do very well. Now, if you have a arthritic big toe, <laughs> it may not be the best idea, but again, as you said, when you're asking, like, I don't think there's one best thing, but you can try to find the average of what kind of works best for a lot of people, but no, every shoe is different, right? You design it for different purposes yeah. for different populations, but I'm yeah. curious to see what happens with when people start looking at like what happens with different shape plates. The problem for the research world is if you want to look at that, like I said, it costs money to create a totally new plate and a shoe. Oh, and a standardize that. How do you stand? Yeah, you have to some kind of constant, right? Like yeah. the foam and the midsole shape needs to be the same, but then you can change out the plates. Oh. Yeah. So Val, right. if you have any ideas, that's where my dissertation is stuck right now. So please let me know if you know. That'd how to be really out. fun. I yeah. I'm I love this kind of stuff. I'm stuck because I don't know how I want to look at that, but I don't know how to like modify those things. What happens biomechanically if you start changing the plate? Yeah. And so I think I, I I'm curious. I don't want to cut you off, Nate, but like I was about plates in general too, yeah. and like there I've been reading about you know is it too, should you not wear them too often? Are you going to lose your own integrity of your foot and how it naturally performs and works? And, you know, at what distance is efficiency going down or, you know, I don't know. It's just like, there's, I've been kind of conscious about letting my foot be natural at some points uh, in the week in my quiver of shoes, but not always wearing a ton of shoe, not wearing, changing the shoe up but not too much to make me create you know like sometimes you, when you're wear testing you can things can pop up because you're changing it so often but enough muscle confusion to not get weak feet because i think i worry about that as a footwear designer um because i mean the body is beautiful and it's as it is right and we put a lot of stuff on it and some it does help and it does help us do things that we've like, you know, I don't think we were necessarily made to run barefoot on pavement, but so we have to create tools for us to do so, you know, such things. But yeah, I, I'm just curious, like maybe from a, a PT perspective about these plates too, you know, like other repercussions to wearing them every day or something. I highly suggest listening to the podcast or the roundtable that I did with Simon Bartold. We actually jumped into that. And the, the evidence is we don't know. Um, right. We do know that carbon fiber plates do change forces in the foot and ankle. They redistribute them. How that affects you long-term, we don't know. But we also know that one of the best ways to prevent, the only way shoes tend to prevent injuries is by training in a large number of them and having variety. The more you train in something, each shoe is going to have unique benefits and unique injury risks. The more you switch things around, the more you're going to mitigate all the injury risks and get more of the benefit from each one. That's cool. We, there is evidence to suggest that, yes, if you, uh, people with a wider variety of shoes have a much lower injury risk than people that generally tend to train in the same shoe all the time, because it's like cross-training. You're exposing yourself to different stimulus. Yeah. 
you yeah, know, it's not using the same muscle over and over and over. Right. The so, way they're built or whatever. So carbon fiber plates aren't bad. Just like barefoot shoes aren't bad. Should you be training in them all the time? Yeah. Or depending on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nathan, sorry. I kept going off on a tangent. No, actually just the going back to that question of like from a PT perspective about plate design and what's, what's best. And I think you, you actually said what I was going to say, Val, just the, this idea of what's best from a performance standpoint, isn't even the question clinically because the people that we work with, yes, I'm in a run specialty clinic and I do work with a ton of runners, but the, the question, the, they're not all elite athletes, right? Most of them are recreational runners who are running in carbon fiber plates all the time. And so that's what I was going to say is what's best from a carbon fiber plate standpoint is a hard question, even in just like, what is it actually being used for? So like it's being designed for performance, but people aren't using it that way only. They're using it in the way that you talked about. And so um, we've had, uh, just as a team, we've had a lot of conversations about about variety and variability and what are some of the changes because of when you use the plate, usually you're, you're stiffening from front to back. And so you have to change the geometry so that you're using rockers instead of your natural rockers in your ankle or your foot. And so what are the repercussions in terms of force distribution and what do rocker soles do then talking about what rocker soles do. And so I think it's, it's just very complicated and person specific right now, just because things are just created and people use them as they will, because it is so pleasurable to run in these shoes. Right. And so yeah. you just, yeah. you just want to do it because it just feels so good. Um, yeah. And you have to look at too, like what makes a shoe a shoe? Because if these, foams are these super critical foams that they're aerating and making for performance. And maybe they're going to get you a quality 100 to 150 miles or something, but you're daily training in it every single day. That yeah. durability factor is pretty low, like in terms of what you're getting back from they, it. Yeah. I've seen some real squish next percents before. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, we know plenty of people. I've got friends of mine that got a thousand miles on it. Yeah, that trains full time in next percents or or you know alpha flies, but they also have the finances available to keep buying mm-hmm. shoes, and they sw- they start swishing them out after about 150 miles, and so then they got their new pair. I'm like, I, I guess yeah. if you if you have the finances, great. Yeah, about the mechanically. So, and then and I also I get yeah. nervous too just because of how soft. I mean, we're we're using the next percent and Vaporfly as the example, but really for any of these shoes. When you have these soft platforms and a metal plate underneath your foot, you don't always feel the engagement with that plate necessarily, or you do, but it, but it's masked by how soft and bouncy the foam is. And so it's like you're, you're jamming your foot into this metal platform constantly over and over again with repetitive motions for long mm. amounts of time. This is for daily training is where I'm going with not, not. But again, from a, from a stress perspective, this isn't that much different if you think about it stress-wise than going totally barefoot. And it's not to say that the middle ground or barefoot or cartwheel, let's say super shoes, you know, when people jumped in, and I say this as someone who ran more miles than I would like to admit in Vibram Five Fingers, I, I was that individual that believed I needed to have no shoe. Hey, I mean, there's a there's some sound there's, logic there. there there's Something. a time and place. There's, yeah. you know, and if you would like to do that, there is a lot of requirements that come from that. But it's the same concept of like, you know, running barefoot all the time on pavement. Yes, you can do it. Are there gonna be are there some potential re- repercussions and injury risk? Yes. 
right? Yeah, and that's, no that's perfect thing. It's the same thing with the play, the car, you know, these super shoes, right? Yeah, they feel awesome. Like, you know, running barefoot, you feel like in touch with the ground. It feels great. Running in these shoes, like, oh, it feels so bouncy. I feel like it's so fast. You know, there's no, there's no free lunch, right? It's like right. variety is going to yeah. be best because the body does best with variety. So yeah, wonder- that's where I was going, was talking maybe like stress reactions, stress fractures, tendonitis up the chain since the yeah. rocker and the designs there might shift loads yeah. further up kind of those overused repetitive type things. That was kind of more the direction of where, where I was going with those comments. I just want to say really, really quick, I'm, I'm going to disappear here in like a minute or two, but you guys just keep going. So ignore the fact that my screen uh, blanks out, but um, you guys just keep going, but I'm going to disappear soon. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting to like go back to racing flats before, you know, thin, feel the ground, light i think maybe more feel the ground in the sense of like i prefer on the track for example they would see me i like a really thin track flat if i'm doing speed work because i want to feel my foot pop off i I don't know i need to i need to know where my foot is a sensation of placement um, and power transfer i don't know yeah it just feels better uh maybe it's an old school thing but so we talk about like being barefoot and like no energy dissipating through foam right or like because there's no energy return i don't even know what that means like energy it, you know what i mean it only goes away it's not right. gonna get returned like um or there's more no of it it might get like the, you, might, you might lose less of it yeah you don't get anything it's like you can't create there's like base physics 101 you can't create yeah. <laughs> how it works exactly yeah so i'm like is there a it, like when you were talking about jamming your foot against a carbon plate, are we trying to almost recreate that firmness without feeling the firmness? You know what I'm saying? Like there's a certain amount of um, force transfer with that. And is that the way to being fastest or what? I mean, but there's so much to it. What like with the breaking down efficiency that the foam offers that then results in you being able to hold longer, stronger, so it's just interesting, the whole thing, like how it's changed, like the wild, wild west of like the paradigm shift has swung, but it somehow all works, but it really depends too on the distances and the surfaces you're running on too. Right. So. And the person's individual biomechanics. I mean, if you look at the buildup to the London Marathon, even Kenanisa Bekele, he, he openly said he didn't like the alpha fly. And that, that he hurt his Achilles because he was training too much in it and that he was trying to go back to the next percent right before the race, but he wasn't able to clean things up in time. Yeah. And it's like not every shoe is for every person, even yeah. at the top tier, even for the elite athletes. Like you have to experiment with these things and shoes are tools and not every tool is yes. going to work the same for everybody. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you get this all the time because I'll get this text message from friends or family what's the best shoe out there? And you're like, oh, what are you looking for? Oh, like, oh, there is no one shoe. Like, <laughs> I'm sure you can relate to this, but now we won't, for the, for the listeners, I just held up the Hoka One One Mach 4. We won't go into any of that stuff, but lately, because I work with a lot of triathletes, I work with a lot of ultra marathon runners in my clinic, and there's so much hype around this shoe right now, and everyone is like, what, what do you think of the Mach 4? Like, should I go buy the Mach 4? And I'm like, well, hold your horses. Like, like I do like the shoe, but 
like it's one of those things like go if you have the opportunity to go try it on go try it on i wouldn't like don't just go all in on this because every reviewer on the planet is saying something or some you know it's easy to get yeah. caught up in the hoopla so i'm a huge fan of go to your running specialty store yep. talk with somebody yep. who has tried all of them on and you can try them all on while you're there i mean it's a little harder right now and this our pandemic life but in yeah. general that's the greatest thing to like be able to take your time with a shoe jog uh, up and down the street come back try another one try compare both that kind of thing is the best way to do it i i totally agree val that like again when people ask like hey what's the best shoe it's like okay <laughs> it's like each person is so different right that's that's what makes this so fun because if everybody had the same foot it would be so boring because shoes would, would start looking exactly the same and they're not at all every shoe is very unique which is what makes this yeah. fun, right? so designing them, <laughs> yeah designing them must be that much even more fun like how can i create this unique thing but it really yeah. comes down to you have to find what works for you and there's a really important, uh, Ben O'Neig was a big proponent of this thing called the comfort paradigm, which one of the few things, right? We can do all this research, which basically goes, I don't know, except that if the shoe's comfortable, it's probably going to fit better for you, right? That's, that's of all the like years of evidence, like when it comes to looking at one person, it's if it's comfortable, that's probably going to work better for you. And you're only going to figure that out if you go try it on. Like, yeah, that's huge. Like, I think that's especially relatable. I think what's people are liking about the change in some of the racing shoes is it can it also be comfortable and perform? And if you are comfortable, you may perform better. Right. Right. Like, so it doesn't have to be like make your feet bleed situation. So (laughs) that's that's the hard part for consumers, like for us. Right. So a lot of us ran in college and we're used to very aggressive spikes and we want that feeling a lot of times in the road. But a lot of people, a majority of the runners that especially in the United States that are buying shoes did not have that experience. They, they want to wear a shoe that's comfortable, that's going to get them through their run. And I think that's what, like, especially Hoka has made that much more accessible, but the change in these racing flats to having more cushion has made the racing flat market more accessible to more people. Because for the first time they're wearing something that's like, hey, I don't, my feet aren't bleeding after a mile in this shoe. This is great. Like, and I have a reason to buy this. So I feel like I'd be curious to hear, I don't know if you can tell us this, but I feel like from what I'm hearing is that all of a sudden the racing flat market is actually more profitable because people are actually willing to buy it. Whereas beforehand it was like casual runners wouldn't buy this stuff. It was like, that's scary. It weighs Mm. less than four ounces. My feet are going to like bleed just walking in this shoe. Like, Oh Yeah. Yeah, it's much more accessible. And why shouldn't anyone at any speed have that sensation? I think like, it's really important as a any brand I've worked at is what is the experience we're trying to provide and then also making that a safe, non-injury providing experience for that person. Everyone, no matter what, should be able to feel fast. And how can we deliver that? And I, I do agree, like when you saw those old adios or whatever and they're like they're so light and small i'm gonna get shin splints or my achilles is gonna explode or whatever it is i think that yeah they've made it the newer designs i that shoe was great for lifting i love that shoe for the gym <laughs> uh i think it's i like great. it on the track too I'm you not do? Gonna, I do yeah it's a cool shoe yeah. um but yeah i think 
making it less scary. And also they're just like, I think they always have been beautiful, you know, racing flats have always been awesome and beautiful. And I think everybody wants to like covet that kind of elite looking shoe, but now you're right. Now people can do it and not get hurt necessarily. (laughs) So it's like just, they're not as aggressive. Right. So like something like that, even, even in Japan, we're seeing, you know, the Japanese marathoners, people who were like four or five hour marathoners were wearing that shoe through a marathon. They're doing like, yeah, this is what we do. Like I'm going to be competitive and I want to beat. And it's like, Wow. Like, yeah. So in Japan, you could sell that United States. You can't do that as much, but even in Japan, they're moving toward that kind of like, Hey, I want a little bit more cushion. Right. So having yeah. ladies. interesting though, when we yeah. were in Japan at the time, this is before the super shoes. Yeah. They, we talked to specialty stores and they were saying, yeah, we provide shoes based on your race times or your yes. PR. So That's we'll how give they you, sell them. the lighter the shoe, the faster you are, yeah. all this kind of stuff. So uh, it's not like you have to graduate necessarily to earn a shoe or not, but that was kind of their mo- mo- model for right. fitting. So, so I'm a nerd and I will be, I'll use Google to go translate like various sites that I won't say uh, for different running companies because I know that they sell stuff in Japan and not here. Yeah. And so I'll look at, and I always saw that to be like, hey, this is a three-hour shoe. This is a 2.30 shoe. This is your four-hour shoe. And I was like, that's interesting that you quantified this based on their time. Right. Not that there's anything yeah. wrong with that. There's just other variables there. But it's like interesting, like that's how you make your, that's how, like, that's how they organize their shoe wall, essentially. Yeah. And that's yeah. a conversation we've had. Like I've had people ask me, but like, hey, I know we're talking about that the concept of stability is a little bit more fluid. How should we organize our shoe wall? I'm like, I don't know. But it's just that Japan would do that by time. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. I don't, I don't know where it started, but it's. I think they're also the sport of marathoning is quite popular. Like it's well known, and times mean something. And maybe it's kind of. I think it's seen as um, like a rite of passage to get to that level, and you can work hard and attain this, you know, ability, which is is half true half not true you know genetics and things but like it's <laughs> i'm not running a 210 marathon that's for sure <laughs> if sorry. you work hard enough it is you no sorry I, work hard enough, I might run a 224 223 but david that's on awesome hey that's better than most so, <laughs> yeah. that's a long shot so it is interesting though like how instilled in our culture that is because even for me until maybe the middle of last year, I finally started considering racing in a shoe that was greater than six ounces. You know, like I always, I was so used to aggressive spike plate, or if it was a racing flat, low profile, snappy ground feel, all that stuff. And it took me a while to come around. I'm like, Oh, that's a marathon shoe. That's a, that's a half marathon shoe. Like, like yeah. that's not going to do anything at the 5k. And then you see Jakob Ingebrigtsen and run like a 1330 in the alpha flies. And you're like, Ooh, okay. Well, maybe, maybe you can run a 5k. Not that I can run a 1330, but like, like you're watching like these people choosing these shoes or like they're running, like, I think Connor Mance, I want to say, or no, it was one of the BYU guys, but they, they won the 10k at NCA's one year in the vapor flies when those were first coming out. Was it legal? It, at the a- time. Yeah. This was, okay. this was um shoot i can't remember who it was it was um i don't think it was rory linkletter it was darn it 
the name's escaping me. I think he runs for ASICs now. Is it? Um, I, yeah, they had such a strong team, or still do. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. they're still super strong. It was a few years ago, though, before the IAAF stuff. Um, World the- Athletics, as they're known now. Just, just Oh, I didn't realize they changed the name. Yeah, world. they are definitely um, requiring... So this is like an interesting part of the job. Now it used to be, here. here's a prototype athlete, whoever, test it, run in it, it's fine. And now we have to get approval from them. They We send wow. them the sample, they can do whatever they want, test, you know, cut it open or give them um, basically like the information so that, to make sure that it passes, right? Legal. So... They have like a yes. whole list now of all the approved shoes. Yeah, I would yeah. Not, if that was my product, I would not become like, screw you guys. I made this. This is the prototype phase. Like, I don't want this getting out. It's like, leave me well, alone. Now but we know the rules. The problem is, is before if you had made something before the rules were released and mm-hmm. you put all this work into it, for example, I think it's the Viper Fly, the Nike Sprint Spike now is not legal, but I'm sure it was created before right. the rules were made. And so now it's like, I guess we can't sell them, but I mean, they got a lot, enough hype out of it. But yeah. Still. yeah, and they got the dragonfly legal. So dragonfly kind of and the, the, the victory. victory. Yeah. yeah. So we're gonna keep going with. What Insta. are your thoughts on that? Because that's that's a critical foam in a in a track spike. I think it's great. I mean, yeah. uh, I think so. I mean, the advantage there is the light weight. Usually, you didn't really. Well, lightweight with more foam. That's the issue, right? If you had to, you want to have enough of this, like, well, part of it is like creating enough lever and you need foam to create that curvature and that lever, right? Otherwise it's kind yeah. of flat and, or it's just like really aggressive sprint spike. Then it becomes a sprint spike instead. So being able to have enough foam and it's light enough is what's cool about the super critical foam, right? Right. It doesn't weigh you down um so yeah do you guys i mean are you working with all brands or just some brands and we, we work with a lot i think i think we have 14 right now we do not oh. have Nike. i think it's more that we might have we've added a one or two more on that so are we at are we at 15 now i think we're at 15 or 16 Woo! that's wonderful i mean i was yeah. totaling this for a while we had in this last like three four month stretch we've added so many um we're we're yeah it's pretty awesome but we don't have nike so we don't have the dragonfly we don't have uh the victory three i i haven't had a chance to try it out myself yet so i I have the victory three and i i i need to do more in it i am i thought i i'm more wowed by the next percents and than i was by the i think it's something about the airbag that feels Mm -hmm odd like am i gonna get sued for this is there anyone watching like and also it is because so thick you can the- say whatever you want on that yeah, you don't work for yeah. you're like <laughs> negative negative drop so yeah. i was having issues with the i don't know the muscle but it like you know that meaty part in your foot on the inside yeah. and then it wraps yeah. up and it was like basically my foot's going yeah. <laughs> like because it's it's so negative drop that it's just crashing and i'm like oh this hurts but i want to run in this so bad to feel it more um but it felt a little lumpy bumpy you know mm. the airbag lumpy bumpy i haven't tried the alpha fly either and i wonder if that's maybe what people are like i don't know if i like that feel 
Um, but I, I want, I haven't tried the dragonfly, which I think would be probably maybe more. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting too, because that NCAA record that was run recently with uh, Cooper Tier uh, in the mile indoors. Fifty. <laughs> yeah. But he was wearing the dragonfly and Cole Hawker behind him was wearing the victory three. Yeah. I was just keeping an eye on what they were wearing because I was curious. And the fact that they're also both running an indoor mile and the dragonfly in theory was supposed to be the 5k, 10k flat to my knowledge. So that he chose that shoe over the other one. But I don't, I don't know. I, um, I heard, I was watching an interview with Craig Ingalls who ran the 5k, who's more of a miler, but he was saying it depends on your foot strike, what you might prefer. I don't know exactly what that means necessarily. I can imagine it may. Um, uh, he was saying like the victory for sure will keep you on your toes. You just have to, I think, be strong enough to handle that. And um, yeah. yeah, it could be just a personal feel, just like at some athletes who run the mile, like a really aggressive spike and some don't. So right. it's that weird yeah. in between zone. Yeah. It's in the person, right? Trying to find what, what kind of shoe or spike is going to match you is unique, right? Just because, you know, every other elite or all the like pros or whatever, or all the other high school athletes are wearing it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the best thing for you. So you got to try it you right. see it works and learn what works for you. Well, yeah. one example, even at the elite level, Shelby Houlihan doesn't wear any of the issues. Yeah. No, she I think she, wears didn't the she start wearing them. Did she? I, I know her record is in the Mamba, but like, I think, she, I feel like more recently she may be in, I think they're probably forced her to wear them eventually. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but yeah. I I'll have to go back and look some photos or something, but I do know. Yeah. Her record was in the Mamba, which is cool. Cause that's super classic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Is it the shoes? How much is it? How much? I mean, we know that the, for over a marathon is different than like the shorter distance you go. Does it matter as much? I don't know. I think Pierre yeah. Julian had a really good comment on that. Cause I so many people right now are like, Oh, it's the shoes, the shoes. He's like, you guys, you got to realize that there's a lot of variables going on. We've also had some pretty massive changes in training philosophies that have also happened. People are right. trying new things. We also had a pandemic which yeah. people couldn't race, which means their base phase could be longer. So for once, instead of going, I have to make a living, I have to go race. Like, hey, I can actually build up. And like, yeah. and again, go check our, 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 our roundtable with Dave Ames about talking about, hey, the, the, like building an appropriate training. These people finally have enough time to build up so they don't have to worry about racing. They actually can work on getting stronger, putting that foundation. And so when it was time to race, all of a sudden they came out and it, it seems like it's coming out of nowhere, but they put that time in because they finally had a time to go. I can't race. What else am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to keep building my like base. So, and also like, I'm so excited to race, right? Like when you haven't in so long, you probably really appreciate and cherish. I mean, there's double-edged sword. You could maybe put too much pressure on this opportunity, but you're very, I'm sure appreciative of it and want to make the most of it because it's, a lot of work to get these meets on and to get there and to travel there. And so, yeah, it's interesting. It's, yeah, it's not like an apples to apples kind of comparison here at all. Not at all. And I think too, the team atmosphere is so much different now where you're seeing all these teams at the pro level, you're seeing Bowerman track club doing all of these things together. You see the Brooks beast who all raced very well. Yeah. That was really cool to see. Yeah. And like you have all these groups that are all training, doing everything that uh, Reebok group out in Boston, they all crushed it at the marathon project. Like 
they're all training together and striving together. And that's what competition's all about is working together to make yourself better. So I think it's kind of awesome to see that in the sport that I think one of the big reasons isn't necessarily the shoes. I think maybe it's, maybe it is playing a part, who knows, but I think the training concepts have changed entirely and people are becoming better athletes as well. So. And I think that's trickling down even, I don't know, maybe there are more run clubs and more run groups before the pandemic uh, just even out of running stores. I feel like that was a big thing. I don't know. I've always joined, belonged to a club team wherever I live. And I feel incestuous because it's been so many club teams, but it's, it's just like, it's, it helps, especially if you've come from that background of being part of a team, they become your crew, your friends, especially makes it's easy when you move to a new place to find friends through the club. Right. Right. So, um, or the opposite. Yeah. You just get adopted into it, like in my situation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of just got, like, <laughs> you are one of us. You must be. Well, there's not a whole lot of option around here. Where do you live, Matt? I'm in uh, more in, like, L.A. County, so, like, East L.A., so I'm in Rovia. Okay. Rovia, Zusa area. Cool. Well, so you're eventually we can all hang out sometime. Yeah. That would be great. <laughs> I've been trying to convince him to come up here. I'm like, we got awesome trails. I would love to escape we LA got and get to Santa Barbara and Ventura County. Got it. <laughs> yeah. I'm from Oregon. You re- like Portland. You really think I enjoy being in like only city all the time? Like, yeah. <laughs> I live in Monrovia. It's right at the base of the mountains. I can go escape sometimes. Oh, that's nice. Well, cool. to some of them, the other, the other parts are closed because of the fires. So, yeah. Mm. Damn it. <laughs> but yeah, is there any other questions that you had from a design standpoint? I didn't want to like bogart this with only racing talk, but Hey, that's uh, just where it's gonna go. That's happened. I know, especially oh, when you that's what happens. That's what yeah. I was telling you too. Like for for those for the listeners, like Val and I were talking on the track the other day and she was like, like, oh, like we have all these questions lined up. Like, how is this gonna go? I'm like, oh no, I'm all I need to prep. We're just like <laughs> There's no prep needed. We're just going to... We don't prep. We just do this live. So, you know, it's whatever happens, happens. Whatever happens, happens. It's fun that way, though, too. It's organic. It is organic, yes. Yeah. But no, I don't don't think I have any further questions or anything. Do you, Matt? Wait, we did have one extra one, right? Oh, well... Coffee or a tea person? This is really... Coffee. (laughs) (laughs) No hesitation. So, living in Seattle and Portland, bet... Like... I'm sorry, there's some good coffee shops here, but Portland and Seattle, the hand, I mean, there is a market to be had here. Yeah. They definitely up, up their game. Yes, preach. Okay, so I'm super boring. I drink coffee every day, but I just make my own pot. I just That's cool. Throw it in. That's cool, no but, judgment. I mean, you know, I'm relatively new to town. What? I mean, I guess we both kind of are. But what's your favorite shop locally? We both live in Santa Barbara, so. I would say... I mean, I a lot of it's proximity based or the bagel base because I'm a big bagel and coffee. There we person. go. So I often will choose Java Station for their bagel, but I really like Intelligentsia beans and I like Handlebar coffee. I think Dune is a little too acidic, a little okay. too light, but I still drink it. I I mean, so, <laughs> uh, and I'm definitely like a basic coffee person like americano 
or just just regular ass coffee and i i do the same I, I do just filter coffee at my house but i do the fresh beans and grind them i don't do like ground not that i don't know if it makes that much difference but i definitely have the habit of like hitting the grinder and then like <sighs> like that oh, kind of thing. <laughs> waft the scent yeah. into my nose <laughs> i'm at that point i am one of the, the psychotic one who drinks like straight cold brew coffee like the concentrate like i don't need water it down it just goes like straight i have a problem um a friend of mine Our called me a, yeah a friend of mine called me a heathen recently because he's like you that straight like she's like there's this new thing called creamer i'm like no i like it like this it's like what so, yeah i but i do admit i'm considering getting like a cheap coffee maker because that that fresh smell is like something else in the morning it's, there's like i i got mine at target so my husband doesn't drink coffee and i it's like all you need is like a little single kind of brew one yeah yeah and it'll make up to like i mean it's funny it says three cups and that makes me like a big cup uh so maybe you can make like yourself two cups or whatever but um yeah i you save money this way because i'm like okay i'm limiting myself like two purchasing coffees a week partly also like just not going in places as often is also a a thought process here i'm being a little bit right but yeah i lived in portland there was a coffee shop called marigold on holgate and it was literally two blocks away from my house so i would buy it all the time it was terrible and then you know it's like a social thing hey it's two or three i'm getting tired you want to go walk and get a coffee like so you end up adding up that money because it's like three or four dollars a coffee well it's it's a good thing for me because down the street is pete's and i'm like you know what giant chain yeah you're like oh i know starbucks is the worst i yeah you have to be desperate and i'm like uh, but if it was say handlebar or dune or handlebar, uh, yeah. all, all of local them. yeah so that might be a different answer but yeah yeah <laughs> all right well thanks so much for coming on val yeah we should just do this sometime even off the record just that'd be awesome I I mean, like that we finish with coffee that's the best way to end this <laughs> <laughs> right yeah uh, well, well great you. to meet you Good to and meet you say hi to Nathan for me again. So <laughs> yeah, we, we will. All right. Catch you later. Um, yeah. Well, and for, for the oh. listeners too, make sure to subscribe, like all the above. We're on all of the channels. We're on YouTube. We're on, we're on Twitter now. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, all the above at doctors of running. Um, pleasure having you on Val and um, yeah. <laughs> we'll take it soon. All right. Bye all. Bye.